1: Why don't we get started then? Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Thursday afternoon uh, Creek lecture series. I'm Ted Gerber, and I'm the faculty director of CRICA, which stands for the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at UW-Madison. And uh, before I turn it forward to my colleague, who will introduce today's speaker, let me just note that this is, as I mentioned, a regular lecture series. We have two more lectures coming uh, for the spring semester. Um, So uh, next week, uh, in fact, our lecture will be by Erica Marat, who's an associate professor at the College of International Security Affairs at the National Defense Institute in in Washington, D.C. Or sorry, it's the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. And the title of her talk next week, same time, same place, will be technological solutions for complex problems, emerging electronic surveillance regimes in Eurasian cities. Uh, so please join us next week, and then uh, the remaining schedule is also available on the CRECO website. Um, but as I know, there's only two lectures to go. Uh, so a few logistical points. We ask that you um, mute your mics during the presentation and also um, mute your videos to uh, produce less stress on the whole Zoom system. Um, our normal procedure uh, is to ask people to uh, ask their, que- say their questions and their comments for the end of the lecture after the speaker has finished. And at that point, we will ask you to raise your hand using the raise hand function under the participant's key in Zoom uh, in order to be recognized by the moderator. And um, also it'd be great if people would introduce yourselves when you're asking your questions. Um, so accordingly, also we prefer people not to use the chat function because it tends to distract everyone from the, the lecture, the speaker, and that's you know, who we want to be the focus uh, during the talk. So without further ado then, I will ask David Danner, my colleague who's professor of Slavic languages and literature in the department of German, Nordic and Slavic to take the floor and to introduce today's speaker.
2: Thank you, Ted. And thank you, Krika for organizing this lecture. This is the second talk that we've asked Dr. Forrester to uh, give at UW Madison. since we live in the age of zoom, the necessity the necessity of using zoom we can split those up so i just wanted to mention before i introduce her that she gave a wonderful talk in the context of my slavic science fiction in literature and film course many of the students i see on the participant list are here for this talk um at the start of our course on uh, this idea that the soviet project can be viewed as a kind of sci-fi project so that set us up really well for the rest of the course, and it's a real pleasure to uh, introduce her for her second talk, which is going to be uh, a little more focused, I think, about uh, translation and names. And I'm as a as someone who's trained as a linguist, I'm really looking forward to this talk. Um, and uh, Dr. Forrester is a uh, professor of modern and classical languages and Russian at Swarthmore College, and. She herself is a translator of fiction and poetry and scholarly prose from a number of Slavic languages, including Russian, and she's translated science fiction in the mix as well. Um, Her current research includes the study of how the Russian technical intelligentsia interacted with science fiction as both authors of it and readers of it. And I should mention, I feel like, uh, Sibyl, and I feel like we should just simply uh, hire you at UW-Madison because you're also appearing in a third Zoom talk coming up very soon that I wanted to make sure everyone knows about. Um, there is a, uh, a volume of essays and poetry by the contemporary Russian poet Maria Stepanova that is uh, being published and so we're having a book launch. Krika is sponsoring this along with the uh, bookstore that is still in downtown Madison, but is moving out of downtown Madison, a room room of one's own. And that book launch and a discussion of uh, Maria Stepanova, and I think Maria Stepanova will be there for that as well, um, and translators of her poetry, and Dr. Forrester is one of the translators of her poetry, among others. Andrew Reynolds is is here as well um, for this talk and has uh, translated some of the poems. Um, will be uh, will be on May 1st, at, which is a Saturday at noon. and so you can sign up for that talk as well through the CreCO website if 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 you'd like to. So uh, it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Forrester back and I'll turn over the floor to her.
3: Sorry, it it offered to let me unmute myself when I had already unmuted myself. It's just a science fictional experience speaking on Zoom anyway. Thank you very much, David, for that nice introduction. And I want to say what a pleasure it was to be involved in that volume on Maria Stipanová, which was edited by Irina uh, Shevilenko. So lots of UW Madison involvement. So I am going to share my screen and show you all a rather simple PowerPoint, just so you can have something to look at as I'm speaking. So my topic today is about what names in Russian and East European science fiction reveal and a little bit about the things that they impose on the translator. So in fact, um, in a lot of science fiction, there are explicit depictions of history that tell how socialism triumphed. So I'm thinking of course, about Russian and East European Soviet and East European science fiction. There is. the possibility that you could just describe the future and have it be sort of implicit that this happened, but a lot of the stories refer to uh, the era when uh, society, human society, earthly society moved towards this wonderful socialist future, because of course that's what happens uh, as society evolves according to Marxism. So uh, that is never the novum in the case of Soviet and East European science fiction. So I've pulled up the novum. This is Darko Suvin's term from Metamorphoses of Science Fiction in 1979. And so he has the idea that the best thing for a work of science fiction that is attempting to depict the future in terms of ideas is to have one big future difference, one big thing. And yet, on the other hand, there need to be a lot of supporting elements to the work of science fiction in order for it to be interesting, uh, persuasive. And one of those elements is the names of the characters. So I ask in this, in this talk, what can names do to suggest new or different things in the society that we're reading about? So the international names in particular have an implicit message. If we see a lot of scientists and researchers, uh, the technical and scientific elite of this future, and then on the other hand, cosmonauts who are kind of a particular kind of uh, scientific and technical elite uh, combined with this sort of explorer heroic identity. That shows us that everyone has access to the education and training needed, or at least every man has the access. So I'll talk about gender as a separate thing. So there are really three kinds of science fiction that I'm going to consider in this talk. One is the alternative present science fiction, One is near future science fiction that's maybe 100 years out or 200 years out. And then the third kind is the distant future. And it turns out that each of these has a somewhat distinct use of names. And I'll just uh, digress for one moment to talk about the use of names in science fiction in the United States. I think in the United States, names can be less telling unless they point to a non-white or non-European background. So if I say the name Sikorsky, and you're of an age, you'll probably think of the helicopter rather than the ethnicity. So I would suggest that race may be more of a topic and uh, for science fiction written in the United States than nationality per se. And uh, just refer to examples from the original Star Trek series and forgive me, I never watched the original Star Trek series, I thought it was silly. Um, It was in reruns anyway, by the time I was of an age to be watching television, but um, there really were efforts at first to have even the extras in the background, the people walking by in their uniforms or their mini skirts. uh, Reflecting gender and racial diversity, although apparently that faded a bit over time. And in fact, Star Trek, the original series, featured the first interracial kiss on television, a black and white uh, couple kissing. So in the United States science fiction, at least, I think you see the message of internationalism with the implication of both future meritocracy and future global equality, a little more um, variably than in the socialist science fiction that uh, I'll be talking about. I also noticed that Russians tend to retrieve Slavic names. If you watch a tennis match and there's a Slovak tennis player, boy, does she sound Russian and look Russian on the screen as the Russians um, are talking about her play. And I was walking down the street once in Russia and the this is post-Soviet now, past one of those tables where they're selling books and there was a stack of science fiction books. So I started looking through and one of them was by an author named Roger Zhelyazny. Oh, this is ringing a bell in an odd way. And it took a while to realize this is Roger Zelazny. Zelazny is the way i had only heard him say, the guy was born in Cleveland. And yet they had kind of repolonized him in, in doing the translation. So another question about names, but that's really the author's names. So I will start by talking about alternate present science fiction. And the first example I have here is Alexander Bogdanov's novel, Red Star. So Red Star imagines that our hero, Leonid, is taken by a starship full of these wonderful Martians to Mars, he's shown the wonderful socialist society on on Mars, of course, Red Star, right, because it's the red planet. So the first list of names are the ones that we hear referring to earthlings, Leonid himself, his common law wife, uh, civil wife, who leaves him rather early on, on the Nikolaevna. It turns out they cannot be together because she's a Menshevik and he's a Bolshevik. So there you are. And then a comrade named Ibrahimov, excuse me, Ibrahimov, which points to the international nature of the Bolsheviks, Ibrahimov obviously being a Muslim last name, and then Leonid's doctor when he returns to Earth after his Martian adventure, Dr. Werner, of course has a German name because all doctors were German in Russian literature up to a certain point. The Martians, however, have really creative names. So Neti winds up being Leonid's love interest. Menni is the captain of the starship. Eno is another person on the starship, Letta, yet another person on the starship, and Sterni is their um, astronomer, I think. Then Nella shows up, and she is Nettie's mother. So here are the Martians' names. In fact, not marked by gender in a way that a Russian would recognize. Nettie, you might say, sounds a little like Annette, but um, Eno, Another woman really doesn't sound feminine at all. Nella does. It turns out not only is she Nettie's mother, but she works in one of the children's colonies, educating the children. So Bagdanov has chosen a bunch of names that demonstrate the point that um, is made explicitly in the text, which is that Martian, the Martian language doesn't have grammatical gender. They don't distinguish he and she. In this, they are like the Finnish language. And if these names look a little Finnish to you, it may very well be because Bogdanov is basing them off names he had heard in Finland. And in fact, the starship, um, their, their, um, it's called takes off from a lake in Finland, which is much more rural. And so nobody will be killed by this nuclear, um, energy that's expended to get it up into the air. So he's just borrowing a language that, um, doesn't have grammatical gender borrowing names that sound very much like that. In fact, here the effect is one of estrangement i think that that we're we're pondering how can it be that there's a language that doesn't have grammatical gender when in fact our language does much the way our students are perplexed by how a table can be uh he and a book can be she right naming plays a notable uh Role also in Karel Čapek's oh I didn't put the hot on the C I apologize to everybody Karel Čapek's famous play R- Er, or Um, Rossum's Universal Robots from 1920. This play was really a phenomenon. Besides introducing the the word robot to languages all over the world, it was playing in all kinds of uh, theatrical capitals very shortly after it originally came out. Here are the names of the characters, not all the characters. These are just the human characters, because the robots have a variety of different names that kind of evolve over time. And so... Chopik and readers of Chopik, like um, Ivan Klima, who wrote the introduction to one of the editions of RUR that you can go out and buy, note that the names kind of suggest a wide variety of different kinds of humans. Domin makes you think of um, domination, Fabry sounds a bit like a factory and fabrication, Dr. Gall, resembling Dr. Uh, or rather Galen, the, uh, one of the original. Uh, creators of medical science. Dr. Halle Meyer, a nice German name, who is a nice bourgeois kind of hall owner. Uh, Busman, Busman is a businessman. This has been shortened and, and handles the finances. And alkvist is um, more of the Tolstoyan, so sounding uh, Nordic. Helena Glory, the heroine of the story, alas, has the name of the, the classical heroine that launched a thousand ships. And then Nana, her nurse comes and has a name that suggests a kind of maternal function. Another important work by Karel Czapik, also in science fiction is his novel, War with the Newts. Uh, Valkas Mlochi, I don't have a list of the names because there are just too many names in that novel. But chopak devotes a lot of attention to the behavior of various nationalities. And he offers stereotypical scientists who name the newly discovered uh, species of newts after themselves, politicians, and others. So for instance, the aristocratic British scientists who are unimpressed by a talking newt because his knowledge of the world reflects the contents of the evening newspaper, his lower class keeper has taught him to read. So rather than being stunned that the newt can actually read and have a conversation, they immediately assume that he's not intelligent because he seems lower class. Chapek also does amusing parodic transformations of some famous names. So one Soviet figure mentioned in the novel is Molokov, which resembles the Czech word for newt or salamander, mluk but also clearly recalls the Soviet politician, Vyacheslav Molotov, best known for his cocktail. And the Newts uh, supposedly wind up worshiping a statue of Moloch, again, a deity named in the Bible, but again, one whose name recalls the, the Czech and also the German names for salamanders. The novel's initial action seems to emerge from a humorous misreading of the Czech Captain Vantoch as a Dutchman named Van Vantoch, And the idea of a Czech sea captain is amusing in itself since the country only has land borders and no coastline, at least not until much later in the book. So um, in this alternative present, which seems to begin somewhat in the past, but then move into the future from 1936 when the novel was finished, the world is not international, but distressingly divided into various nationalities. And this leads it toward doom in a way that is resonant with Um, climate crisis today. So I shall just mention without again showing you any of the names, the Red Count, Alexei N. Tolstoy's take on Mars, uh, Aelita, Aelita becoming the basis of a famous early science fiction movie in the Soviet Union. Also, I gather there's an anime or, yes, an anime character named Aelita, just because it's such a cool name, so, that novel includes Martian names and toponyms reminiscent of the Aztec language. So, for instance, the Martians refer to the earth as Talzetl. So, that sort of TL um, phoneme that occurs in Aztec toponyms. Some of the other Martian names are not, uh, not quasi Aztec. So, the earthling hero we see at one point pondering the etymology of Aelita's name. The first part, Ae, meant seen for the last time, and Lita means starlight. And Ayurita eventually explains that the Martians and their civilization have indeed descended from earth people who spoke a language very like Aztec. So the effect on the reader's view of Martian society might be called exoticizing rather than defamiliarizing. Unlike Bogdanov's, Tolstoy's characters are highly differentiated by sex and Martian society for Tolstoy is far from being an example of socialism. Indeed, the earthling visitors attempt to foment a socialist revolution there. All right, moving to near future science fiction. One very famous example is Stanislaw, oh my God, I'm sorry, Stanislaw Stanislaw Lem's novel, Solaris from 1961. Here are the characters, it's just a few. In this case, they're on a space station and uh, the ocean of course is a character, but the ocean of Solaris, uh, so embarrassed, oh my God. Ocean of Solaris does not have a name. So the narrative consciousness here is Chris Kelvin. One of the colleagues he meets on the space station is named Snout. If you read the first translation that was made directly from French, the name is given as snow, which doesn't seem to make sense until you realize how Snout would be pronounced in French. It would be pronounced as, sorry, as snow and therefore the translators just made it easier to read in English. But there's a point in the early part of the novel when um, poor Kelvin has just arrived on the space station where um, he's being introduced to Snout. Uh, Snout is introducing himself and he says, "'People call me Rat,' or in, the, in this translation, people call me Ratface, it makes no sense at all if his name is Snow. Why on earth would you call him Ratface? But if his name is Snout, it makes a lot of sense. Why would they call him Ratface, right? The idea that you have a snout like a rat. Another character in the novel is named Sartoriusz, which means tailor in Polish. And um, even though it's been um, transformed into something more English looking in the translation, in both of the translations that are available, uh, nevertheless remains uh, possible to read as a Polish name. Uh, Chris Kelvin's former mentor, Gibarian, is dead when he arrives on the space station, and yet we can tell that it's an Armenian name. Then Hare, or Rea in the uh, translation from the French, is the uh, recreated sort of um, revenant visitor based on Chris Kelvin's girlfriend from earlier in his life. So these names too are showing us a variety of ethnic and national backgrounds. The um, Chris Kelvin, Kelvin in fact, seems to be named with a presumably English last name and it resonates strongly with science because of the use of Kelvin for conveying temperatures in space. Although the name was in honor of someone whose name was not Kelvin, but William Thompson, Lord Kelvin. So. Kelvin is named for his Lord name, not his actual name. So there's an interesting kind of double layer to that name. Snout would seem to be Scandinavian. And again, Sartorius, uh, Polish, meaning tailor. Gibarian, uh, Armenian. And then Brea itself might've been a good translation choice because it sounds more like classical Greek. Hare, I don't know what the ethnic background of that would be, but it's yet another um, background. Let me see, did I make a slide for, no, I did not. I will go back and say that in um, Lem's presentation of solaristic science, we get a suggestion both of a broad and worldwide meritocracy and of a widening community of science, which is gradually joined by members of different nations and groups. So Kelvin, uh, usefully for uh, his author, sort of decants an awful lot of the solaristic science and the history of exploration and research on Solaris for the reader. So so in order to give us this information, Kelvin just turns out to be somebody who likes to tell us, and he cites all of the scientists and uh, explorers on Solaris. So the names start off with a range of English, German, French, and other European names, such as Ottenskjöld, Shanahan, Civitovita, then some Polish and Russian names get added to the mix. And as you go through the book, you start to have more names that are not standard or recognizably European. It ends up with Ko Koenmin, Ngiala, and Kavakadze. So we've moved quite far afield from Europe with the suggestion that non-Western scientists are getting included in the project perhaps in parallel to the expansion of the scientific community in the 20th century. And this adds similitude to what is in any case a very persuasive display of pseudoscience. All right, here are just a few names briefly from Lem's Tales of Pirx the Pilot, which was from to move this to see 1965. So these are the names of fellow students at the school where Pirx is studying to be an astronaut. That one looks German, maybe that one's Czech. Brandon sounds Irish, perhaps. Matters sounds British somehow. Grotius, one of the professors, perhaps uh, Swedish. Marinus, sim- similarly. Um, that us ending being rather typical of Swedish names. When Pirks actually gets onto his first mission and is sent to the moon to help investigate a mysterious couple of deaths, we discover that there were two um, scientists on the moon from Canada whose last names were Chalier and Savage. So presumably a Franco-Canadian and an Anglo-Canadian. So here's Lem carefully giving us both both varieties that we would expect from Canada. On the moon, Pirks also meets um, people named Lang- Langner, Ganshin, Pnin, uh, I don't know whether that's a little in the book of reference, and Anim Tsev. And of course, then there's Pirks. What on earth does Pirks suggest? I think Len is just having fun here, although I don't know Polish. Maybe there is a word um, in any case. Right. Um, the Strugatsky's novel, Far Rainbow, is interesting in giving a similarly mixed group of explorers and scientists on the planet Dalyokaya Raduga. So numerous Russian names appear alongside international ones. The starship on which Leonid Garbovsky, who's a favorite recurring character of the Strugatskys, is the captain. I think his co-pilot is Mark Falkenstein. And then Mikhail Sidorov is the main administrator on the planet of Far Rainbow. Um, Garbowski tells Falkenstein when Falkenstein starts speaking Japanese so that Sidrov won't understand him. No, you can't do that. He already speaks Japanese. So there's reference already to people knowing languages that you might not expect them to know. Of course, um, Arkady Strugatsky spoke Japanese very well and translated Japanese science fiction too. There are two dueling physicists on the planet of Far Rainbow whose exploits eventually seem to lead towards destruction of the planet. So one is Etienne Lamondois sounding very French, and the other is Aristotle, presumably a Greek. Here are some minor characters, again with ethnically interestingly varied names. So the, um, the novel shows a future in which people from quite various backgrounds mingle and interact. They keep their national origins and their original languages while they're nonetheless able to speak Russian because it is Russian science on this planet and technology and exploratory energy that have brought them there sometimes the characters also come with a stereotypical feature so Zadeh has a hooked nose which in one scene gets punched so again as in as in chekhov if you have a a rifle on the wall it has to be fired before the end of the of the play in the strugatsky's collection of connected stories noon 22nd century Pol Dien 22 vek from 1961, they set up their universe, which is known to fans as the noon universe or nooniverse if you're extra cool. Uh, The story begins on Mars with, or the stories I should say, begin on Mars with four characters. Three of them are Russian speakers, but with different backgrounds, a Novago, Mandel, and Oponashenko, sounding very much like um, a Russian uh, Soviet Jew and a Ukrainian. And the fourth one is a Canadian whose surname is Humphrey. Then we have a f- number of stories set in a school uh, where Tsiolkovsky, there's a statue of Tsiolkovsky in the lobby of the school and the various uh, characters in the school have many, uh, many of them have Russian names, but also there's one named Nguyen Phu Dat, who is v- Vietnamese and moreover has his name in the proper order. Uh, Gurgenidze, a Georgian, the... Um, In another story, we meet Walter Soronyan, who I don't know, is he Anglo or Armenian, or maybe both together. And the preponderance of Russians remains throughout the collection. And indeed, in most of the Strugatsky's work, it's generally set in Russian space when it's set on Earth. But there are usually a few characters from somewhere else. So once out in space, a member of the crew named August Bader speaks Russian, but he throws in an aber, now and then to remind us of his German background. I'm not sure that's the word that would stick if you were a native speaker of German. However, um, he has this little verbal tick that reminds us of uh, translation theorist, David Bellos's suggestion that including a little token of foreignness can give the reader the delectable sense of reading something in a foreign language. In the Strugatsky's Roadside Picnic to wind up the Strugatsky's part of the story in, uh, published in 1971, it's presumably set in Canada, given the bits of surrounding realia that are provided. And the novel has an opposite distribution of nationalities to the usual Strugatsky distribution that befits its location. So the names are mostly Anglo and French, uh, occasionally more exotic than that, with only one or two Russians. One of the characters, Kirill Panov, is a uh, almost the only positive character in the novel, of course, and he's a lasting inspiration to the main character, Redrick Schuhart. Even after Panlop's death, his scientific papers continue to appear in print as if to underline his engagement with genuine scientific progress, unusual in a novel that tends to be cynical about its human beings. So in almost all these cases, we're meant to perceive the national character of the names and to read the mix of identities by seeing this future society as much less nationalistic and much more cosmopolitan, even in the case of the very negative depiction in Roadside Picnic. So in socialist era science fiction, again, the obligatory multi-ethnic starship crew can convey an adequate enough suggestion that we're reading a story from the socialist future And if in the story, the characters speak Polish or Russian, but also know Western European languages, especially English, French, or German, then this stresses the high level of education of this future as much as the historical and scientific importance of these Western European languages. So there's a sense of a a cultural background that includes language as well. So this use of names, this kind of, oh, sorry, Forgive me, I changed the order of these. Um, looking just for a moment at the question of gender in science fiction, really a lot of Eastern European and Russian science fiction handles the socialist international future thing quite differently from gender. You often get a story with no female characters at all, or female characters who are kind of mothers on the periphery of some new society. But I want to mention Olga Laryonovna. Laryonovna was. Story of which Mira Ginsberg translated as Temira. Temira is the name of the little planet on which it's set. And Larionova has a number of names that show up. Fevrier, who's the captain of the small starship doing the exploration. Bayarinov, obviously Russian name, who is assigning them a new crew member before they leave Earth, who is Groning. They refer to him as Grog. Again, sounding like a Scandinavian last name. Uh, Bustamante is mentioned. Tasaburo, to me, sounding Japanese, is mentioned. Another member of the crew is Reggie Scott. So they get to this planet Temira. They meet the locals, who are an interesting, very small variety of human beings. I won't spoil the plot for you. You should go and read it. It's really a very good story. They can't say their names. So one of the characters winds up being kind of named Ixi. But in passing, Reggie Scott refers to the time when Abakumova and her party froze to death on an asteroid doing an expl- uh, exploration there. So even though this crew is entirely male, there's reference to a woman, right? We know as students of Slavic languages that that A at the end is conveying her gender. So it shows up in some places. Larionova is one of maybe five women who were writing science fiction in the Soviet era. And since I'm talking really about the uh, influence of Soviet and socialist ideology on the use of names, I'm sticking to that period for the most part. But I do want just to refer for a moment to Viktor Pelyevin's wonderful kind of anti-science fiction novel, Omon Ra from 1991. The um, characters' names, these aren't all of them, but I'll just quickly run down some of them. The crew of this spaceship that is supposedly going to the moon but winds up being a deception located in an unused metro tunnel, sorry if that spoiled the novel for you, Um, including Ivan Grechko, Otto Plutsis, with a uh, Baltic name, Syoma Anichkin, who's a good Russian boy, Dima Matyushevich, and then the hero of the novel, Amon Krivomazov, whose first name is completely impossible for someone who was Um, of an age to be an astronaut in the Soviet period, and whose last name crookedly recalls the Karamazovs. Then the names of, uh, so anyway, the point about this is that you have a a kind of stereotypical uh, variety of ethnicities from the Soviet Union who are represented in the crew. Indeed, they're almost chosen for their ethnicities in addition to their other characteristics. Here are two of the really hysterically silly names of the people running this supposed space program that turns out to be an anti-space program, Bamlag, Ivanovich, Urchagin, just horrible, Pradzer almost, um, and Pidarianko, right, almost obscene names, uh, not hard at all to turn into something that you wouldn't want to say to your grandmother. And then Pradzer's patronymic here is Vladlenovich. That also tells us what his ages? His father was born around the year that um, Lenin died. So you have names like Vladlen or Vilian, or Ninel for women that um, memorialize Lenin. So Vladlen himself, Pidorianko, would have been uh, from a generation as identifiable as Winston in um, Orwell's 1984. Then uh, finally, at the end, when uh, uh, amon has discovered what really is going on here. He lists a number of uh, cosmonauts, supposed cosmonauts, who are also located in in the parts of the metro where no one gets to go. One of them, for example, is Jambul Mesilaitis, which again is an almost impossible combination of ethnic qualities in the first and last name. So, um, Pilevin is definitely not writing the kind of science fiction that I'm talking about, but his play with the names depends on the reader knowing the uh, the standard way that the names are used. All right, I'm going to now move into distant future science fiction. Here is uh, just a small selection of names from Yefremov's famous, 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 famous novel Andromeda Galaxy or Andromeda Nebula, Dar Vetter Vedakong Ergnur. So it turns out in this future, which is thousands and thousands of years in the future, people handle their names in a very different way. They choose their name when they enter adulthood. They choose names that are meaningful to them. Dar Vieter to me really makes me think that um, this was read before the Star Wars movies were made. And Darth Vader is maybe the best of the names in all of the Star Wars movies, Star Wars movies even better than Darth Vader, which of course means gift wind. So interestingly, the name doesn't have a genitive in it. It doesn't have a standard name ending. It really suggests we've moved into a future where people are quite different from the way we are. They don't give each other nicknames. It is true that in the novel, Yefriyamov will often refer to the female characters by their first names. So Vyada and Niza get called Vyada and Niza. Um, Dar Vyater does not get called Dar. And Venmas does not get called Mven. Right? They, they somehow keep their whole long name. It's fascinating to see that the characters call each other Vuy even if they are very close to each other. So this is a difficult thing to convey in translation, because in English, we really only have the form you. There is, of course, the form thou, thy, thee. But I think that most readers today would perceive that as a more formal form, because they would know it from Shakespeare, and possibly from the Lord's Prayer, which seem like more elevated forms. So unless you're reading um, D.H. Lawrence, right, it's not a an informal form you're likely to run into. So Yefremov has come up with this really defamiliarizing view of the future. Here's another distant future um, novel from the very, very early uh, 1924, of course, is the date of publication in English. The first publication in the Soviet Union, I think, was in 1988 or so. So here are the characters in Zamyatin's We. I've, again, just chosen the main ones. We have D-503, I-330, O-90, R-13, S, we don't know. And then U, again, we don't know. So um, Zamyatin both manages to defamiliarize and suggest that the numeri, as they are in Russian, have been defamiliarized, have been turned into cogs somehow with this form of naming. And yet manages to convey a surprising amount in this tiny bit of information. So D-503 actually is the. 3 in the Russian edition, they're looking very like delta, which is the sign in physics for change. So poor D503 has been named Mr. Change in case we don't notice that he's evolving and changing over the course of the novel, of which he is, of course, the narrator. I330, who is I in the original, not um, E or something, not a Russian E, has the uh, English first person pronoun befitting a uh, a wildly individualistic person, but also recalling the square root of negative one, which is so troubling to D. O 90, O 90, right? The O representing kind of the womb and, and perfect rounded femininity. R 13 er is the English R. In a way he's the flipped ya, ja, first person pronoun. Again, he's a poet, he's individualistic to some extent, S has this double curve and a kind of a snake-like personality. And then finally, you, who is the dijournaya at the place where D-503 lives, he doesn't give her number because he doesn't want to embarrass himself mentioning her, but discusses that she looks a bit like a fish with hanging gills. And with you, that makes no sense. But with the Russian letter U, it looks just like a fish. So Zamyatin has done a very good job with his... Um, meaningful, meaningless future names. And finally, Stanislav Lem, and I don't have the word, forgive me, I've messed Lem up twice in one lecture, but um, his novel, Siberiad from 1965, And there are other stories that were published later. I think 1972 was the first complete edition. In the English translation, the 1965 part is one volume, and then the later stories that were published in Sibiriada in 1972 came out as a separately titled different edition. So here are some of the names, the two heroes of the novel, and I won't spoil it if you haven't read it by telling you their nature. Um, Trorol is one, I guess Trorol. This is kind of like like Pirks how do you pronounce it? And then his friend Klopauciusz or Klopaucius who are uh, constructors in this wonderful future. So Lem here is handling the future by giving people really funny names. So here are some examples, looking also at the translations. So some of the translations are quite similar to the Polish. This translation was done by um, Michael Kandel who is just a brilliant, Brilliant translator, and was in consultation with Lem, doing the translations. And Lem's letters to uh, Kandel have been published in translation, so you can go check out what they had to say to one another. But in particular, Lem said, um, "Don't worry about making it exact. Make it funny. Make it effective. This is not a novel that, um, or not a collection of stories really. It's not a novel. This is not a set of stories or fables that needs to worry about literal accuracy." So, in any case, here is a number of Um, translations that are very close to the original. Then there are some where it's more translated by um, by the meaning stalo otsi, steely pips, right? The stalo, you see the steel. Genialon, who's one of the round um, creatures in one of the stories, translated as genius. Exelios, as excelsius. So this is interesting. The name sounds more like exile, but then goes to kind of excellent or excelsior. And then you get some translations that are really completely different. So Potworik becomes King Atrocitus, Migierik King Ferocitus, forgive my Polish. Um, Pantarctic, isn't that a wonderful name, becomes Prince Pantagoon, because how are you gonna put the Arctic into, into um, something in English? Barzolimus Tuoki, Bartholokost. So here's this wonderful portmanteau word that Kandel has created. And then I think his most brilliant piece of translation, Krul Akkruciusz. Um, krul is king in Polish. So uh, Kandel gives us king cruel. Cruel, of course, meaning cruel, but also sounding just like cruel. And Akkruciusz uh, from the word, um, I don't even know the Polish word, but it meaning meaning cruel. So that is the end of, forgive me, need to stop sharing. That is the end of my little PowerPoint there. But um, showing that in the distant future, the names are really defamiliarizing um, different in a way that the names from the near future are not. So the names from the near future are obligated to show the uh, international progress, the international um, meritocracy, almost transnational sometimes nature of the future under socialism. Whereas in the distant future, you no longer need to do that. In the distant future, you're so far from the present that in a way you can do whatever you want with the names. So one challenge for the translator is to bring across as much of this information as possible. And so from time to time, I've mentioned how much it was possible to bring across and how much there wasn't um, wasn't necessarily Using names to show internationalism, transnationalism, or post-nationalism in a text works because we're used to reading names for signs of ethnic and national belonging. And in most cases, the same tactics can work in translation readers from different backgrounds are going to have different abilities to read and interpret the names. So, for example, how many Anglophone readers know that Idze or Shvili means a Georgian name, that Armenian last names end in Jan, that Enko is typical of Ukrainian surnames, or that many Latvian names end with S. How many people will know that? Maybe not. Maybe not so much. But in any case, um, even seeing that characters in a text are not all named in the same way, suggests that there can be important variation among them. Socialist internationalism can map nicely onto Western liberal ideas of social fairness and access to professional advancement, even though not all Western science fiction strives to express those ideals. And at this ele- as this element of depicting the future seems common to much science fiction of the Cold War period, it might be tempting to see in it second world anxieties of being excluded from the whole world, or more negatively ambitions to rope the whole world and all of its inhabitants into one side of the Cold War opposition. And um, just returning to gender for one moment, I did not say when I was speaking about Yefremov, but he actually passes the Bechdel test. It doesn't happen till about page 175, but there's a novel where he really made the effort to have full gender integration and uh, racial justice and sometimes he tries a little bit too hard with the with the racial equality in this future society but but Yefremov really was um, putting his money where his philosophy was so thank you very much and i look forward to any questions you might have
2: thank you very much dr forrester that was terrific and thought provoking and Uh, I am going to be moderating the questions, although I think that uh, Sibylin can see for herself who might raise their hand or uh, otherwise uh, want to make a comment or ask a question. So we'll open up the floor for those now. Don't be shy.
3: Łukasz. Oh no, someone who pronounces Polish properly. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry.
4: no need. Your pronunciation was was excellent. Um, uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, my name is Lukas, and I'm a, a assistant professor at uh, at uh, GNS uh, mm-hmm. in the Slavic plan. Um, and uh, my question concerns uh, the, uh, the the categories that uh, uh, you use to distinguish between different types of fiction. Because you use the the idea of the the, the near future and the distant mm-hmm. future, so uh, temporal categories. Um, I'm wondering how um, um, uh, uh, whether a different scheme of, about this the significance here of a different scheme that is uh, mm-hmm. uh, there is literary conventions adapted by the author. For example, I'm thinking about Stanislaw Lem in this particular case, who in different works adapted different uh, uh, different genres or or conventions. So uh, uh, novels like Solaris would be classified as sort of more uh, quote unquote realist, trying to Mm. um, work as more or less simulations of of a near or far future uh, experiences uh, and are treated sort of more seriously as a a kind of a quasi philosophical uh, form, as opposed to something like the Sybriad, which uses the the taps onto the conventions of the grotesque. Mm. Uh, And it's much closer in terms of style and genre to something like. Uh, gargantua and Pantagruel mm-hmm. uh than than to uh to something like solaris um or you know the conventions of uh um of the realist novel. So um I'm curious how 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 that um uh temporal scheme also uh and, and the meanings you you derive from that uh from uh, from those meanings sort of intersects with this other um um other way
3: of categorizing
4: these works.
3: Mm-hmm. Well that's uh Thank you for that also interesting information about Lem. Lem is marvelous, any of you who haven't read Lem much because his books are so different from one another. And so absolutely, I think it's significant that the subtitle is Fables, right? And it, it's not, is it Baikie, Baikie? I'm trying to remember the Polish name, although I have, I have a copy, I just don't have it at home sort of decaying on my shelf because the paper is such poor quality. Someone in the library system, please, find these copies of Tiberiada that, that are there and conserve them because the original versions aren't going to be available if too much time, more time passes. But I think that the fact that you picked Rabelais is is such a good example of why he would have to use crazy names because Rabelais is doing exactly that. The, the fact that they're like fables, I think also they can be read through folklore in a way that um, Solaris can't. You're absolutely right, Solaris is realistic to the point of giving you all this science that isn't real science that's that um, it's kind of like Tolstoy's historical digressions in War and Peace. I don't know. I don't know how well that would map onto the other works I found. the my categorization of um, alternate present, nearish future, maybe up to a thousand years in the future where these ethnicities still matter, and then distant future where you have something completely different, a completely defamiliarizing um, naming convention really emerged from the reading and rather than from looking for examples. And so it just happened that Lem was doing this in a work where now one of his tricks is that in one case, it's a million years in the future. And in another case, it's after you know that that um, at different points in the book, he he gives us I think three different versions of of history and of what the timing would be. So I think you're right, absolutely. And for reading Lem in particular, who was a very serious author, looking at the um, the the genre he's chosen, looking at the models he's chosen for the particular work is super informative. But I don't know what it, what the impact on the question of names would be besides that Rabelais did it too. Rabelais gave his characters these amazing names that, in fact, there's been a lot of work on the translations of Rabelais and were they adequate. And, and, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the author of an article I was reading last fall that I now can't remember, but the idea that um, the translation needs to convey as much of the um, historical content for Rabelais. So for example, he has a character named Romenaz and the translator gave some silly thing, but it turns out Romenaz refers to one of the competing popes at the time who had a very large nose. And so if you were there, you knew, but the translator just hadn't bothered to think about it. Sorry, that's getting far afield from them.
4: Thank you. Uh, also, as a kind of a as, as a, as a random comment, the, uh, uh, this year uh, it's a centennial of uh, Lem's birthday and uh, the MIT press releases uh, a collection of six new translations of Mm. uh, Lem's works and some of them are new, some of them are updated. So uh, that's going to be more um, uh, fodder for your project, I think. That's Uh, marvelous. I'm so Uh, glad to hear.
3: Wonderful to hear because um, for a long time, Lem was my author who would never go out of print for teaching a science fiction course in translation to undergraduates, right? And and then after he died, things started to go out of print. So thank goodness MIT Press has stepped up. I'm glad to hear it and we'll thank you, Thank you, thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Wukash, uh, for that question. Uh, I think Brian uh, Kilgore is next. Brian, could you briefly say uh, who you are before a- asking the question?
5: Sure, yes. Um, hey, I'm Brian. I'm a graduate student in Slavic languages and literature at UW. Um, and this was very interesting. And, and I really appreciated kind of seeing all these characters listed out on your PowerPoint. And I was wondering if you had thought about doing, at least thinking about the question of translation and the issues with that, the reverse of taking kind of American or English language science fiction and looking how odd names are translated into Russian at a similar time period, mm-hmm. um, even mm-hmm. things that, um, kind of are as old as H.G. Wells, like when um, uh, Lukács brought up the idea of far future, near future, contemporary, right? I th- feel like the time machine, for example, is a really mm. interesting corollary because you have like uh, n- uh, various versions of time all occurring at once, including this very bizarre far future. Um, Mm -hmm. and so you've got the weird names that show up in there. And I was one, and that's a text that also is so early that I feel like it's more likely that it would have been translated Mm -hmm. in Russia during the Soviet period versus something by by Asimov where I'm not quite sure if you have some of those 1950s works being translated. Mm And currently, so I was wondering if you'd, um, thought about, or looked at kind of the, the reverse issue of how, um, Western works and odd names are translated into Russian at this time period. Well, yeah,
3: that's a super question, and your example of H.G. Wells is a really good example, because he was a Fabian, he was acceptable, he was widely translated and in print until, and still in print, right, in in Russian editions. So one of the problems there would be indeed who had been translated in that period. So, so in the Thaw period, roughly, you know, through the 70s, the ones who were widely available were Asimov and Ray Bradbury Arthur C. Clarke and Clifford Simak. And, you know, I don't, to be honest, know where to look for the weird names. So I I believe that Asimov's Foundation trilogy was considered such a rabid work of capitalist, whatever, that it didn't get translated until quite a bit later. So Wells would be the place to look. It's a great idea. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. And haven't read, I haven't read much of that science fiction in translation, but you're right. It's the same set of questions.
5: And that's such a, thank you for saying that about Asimov. That's so interesting that Foundation was seen as this ultra capitalist, because that would be his far future. Um, whereas iRobot, I think has far more natural, more re- uh, recognizable name structures.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, and that also, I know for sure was translated. So what I know about what was translated is largely what I saw in catalogs when they still used paper catalogs to sell Soviet translations. And I didn't have enough money to buy things at that point because I was a graduate student. But, um, but indeed, uh, one wonderful thing about the topic you suggest is that I'm sure all that stuff is online. I'm sure it's all online. I'm sure it's all online from the 1990s because the people who knew how to make web pages at that point were the ones who liked science fiction, and so you can find plain text versions and just copy and paste, and then do whatever you like with them without flashing ads and viruses. So go looking now, go looking now for those translations. Thank you. I I, I give you the topic that you generously suggested, although I want to see it at a conference. <laughs> All right,
2: thank you, Brian, for that question. Other other questions, other comments? Um, I
6: just, hi, this is Andy Spencer. I'm the, the Slavic librarian here oh. at Madison. And I, I just wanted to mention, you mentioned Clifford Simek, who was, of mm-hmm. course, Wisconsin. Mm. Um, and uh, just before the, uh, the, the COVID shutdown, in fact, the week before the library shut down in March of 2020, I spent that whole week working on a very large donation of Soviet and post-Soviet science fiction and detective novels, Mm. 1400 volumes worth of of, uh, genre literature that at some point is gonna be cataloged for our collection. And I, I definitely remember there was Asimov. There was mm-hmm. uh, there was all, all of those ones that that you mentioned, plus uh, plus some others as as well. So mm-hmm. at, at some point, UW Madison will have a quite nice collection of of, of uh, Russian translations of British and American science fiction.
3: Oh, that's wonderful because the the versions online that I mention often don't tell you. Whether it's been censored, you know, and often don't have, give you any idea of what the cover looked like. Um, that, of course, comes up in in later versions where you can cheat. Type his plot online, but um, Clifford Simak, in particular, and I say Simak because that was how he was transliterated, was a writer I had never heard of, and I was talking to a friend who said, "Oh no, no, no! You have to put her, put him on on your list as well." And um, so I Googled Clifford Simak. You say, "I guess that's right." If he's from Wisconsin, you would know, and the, the Wikipedia article says one of the most under, understudied and neglected um, Anglo, Anglo-American science fiction authors. So, but the, the Soviets knew he was there and liked him a lot. And thank, thank you. you. And, and I hope you'll go and um, conserve the, what have I done? Oh no, Stop, share. I'm so sorry. I clicked without meaning to. I hope that was interesting. (laughs) Thank you, Andy, for that information.
2: Okay, Isabella is up next. Hi, you're on mute, Isabella.
7: Sorry, thank you. Okay, there you are. Thank you so much for that interesting talk. Um, I'm also a graduate student um, in the Slavic department. Um, And so, sorry, I'm still sort of gathering my thoughts, um, Hmm. but I will try and articulate my question as well as I possibly can. Um, one of my research interests is actually folklore. So I'm the very happy mm. owner of your book, um, The Russian Folk Tale. Oh, um, wonderful. Yes. And um, one topic that I'm starting to get into right now is um, the issue of sort of multi-generational naming practices in a sort mm. of historical literary context. Um, and most of the examples that you gave during your presentation, I think sort of fell on a more national gender Line, but um, you did also give a couple examples of people being named um, sort of after or in honor of, or mm. sort of reminiscent of historical character or sorry historical figures, and so um, I was curious. I thought it was interesting how sort of on one hand, um, sort of the genre of science fiction sort of reaches far into the future or into mm. a sort of alternative present, um, but then referencing historical figures then makes the line reach into the past. And I was curious if your research had touched on the ways in which this sort of like two direction um, sort of reach draws a line between all three categories of past, present, and future.
3: That's a lovely idea. And I have not looked into that, but, but you're absolutely right that, that if you're memorializing somebody in the name, right, it could be like the Jewish tradition of giving, giving a name that begins with the same letter as as the beloved person who's no longer with you. And then on the other hand, the that wonderful Russian, like Alexander Nikolaevich, who's the father of Nikolai Alexandrovich, and then and then so on and so on down, you introduce something like Vladlin Viljan, you break the, you break the system. And if you introduce something like Pradzer, which um, um explains and I forget what it's a an acronym for something, but I um I had a professor who told me he knew a Soviet scholar whose name was Elektrivikaze or something, or Elektrychis was something, and all his friends called him Sok, because how were you going to say <laughs> say the whole name? So so indeed, actually, one thing I didn't mention, because I was cutting out things, so as not to speak for more than 45 minutes, is that in Yefriyamov, you do have some characters with not just Darvyetar, right? We learn that Darvyetar is of Russian background, and so he's chosen two Russian words, but they're words, not names. He has some character, there's one in particular who's a friend of Veda Kong, another um, archaeologist, and she's a specialist in underwater archaeology who is descended from Japanese pearl divers, and she has a Japanese name that sounds Japanese. And so she has intentionally held on to this past that's thousands of years before right? Of course, there's still Japan, but it's no longer a separate country. And everybody knows different languages and so on. So I love your idea of having points in the future points in the past points in the present. And I think that something like the Russian patronymic system works that way, it works that way, or at least it has the potential to work that way, right? Um, I had a professor whose first name was Sergei. And he said, I have to name my kids Alexander so he can be Alexander Sedgnevich hey, and <laughs> let me guess who you're memorializing right but um, for women it doesn't work
1: mm-hmm. so
3: for women um, you lose you lose the connection unless in fact you have the Japanese pearl diver who's who's taken we don't know or Achmatova, who took her great-grandmother's surname as her as her um, pseudonym so I don't know it's a great idea though Thank That's you crazy. very much. It doesn't work yeah, with, doesn't work with Siberia, but mm-hmm. works in a lot of other things. Yeah, PAdZer sounds like Prince. It's true. I think Sinyavsky definitely was being funny, but, but PAdZer is, it is um, an, an acronym for some achievement mm. of Soviet something. So, so wonderful,
1: wonderful Thank question.
3: You. And um, props to all of the graduate students at to Wisconsin. We've hired three of them over the years to teach Russian at Swarthmore, so.
2: Thank you, Isabella. Karen is next.
3: Sibylin, it's such a pleasure to see you. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming out. I I wish you were actually here. (laughs) <laughs> you know, i know thank you this is such a fun wonderful talk um the the conjecture about grobius made me think about walter Gropius. and mm. um th- and that made me think about Tolstoyan. the tolstoyan practice of changing one letter trubitskoe, trubitskoe, mm, Balkonski, yes. Balkonski, Balkonski, and so forth and i'd wondered if you had looked at that and if if devices of ch- switching one letter uh had any particular meaning if you had looked at that thing as always i'm looking at the trees instead of the forest instead of the forest but it's a wonderful question. And actually, yeah, yeah right? I had a, I had a teacher when I was in college whose maiden name had been Shcherbatskaya and it made me think, oh, because I hadn't read the article yet. But um, I think that Lem is making little weird sideways references all the time with his characters' names. And I haven't, I don't know Polish, I haven't read the literature on Lem. I just think he's really cool and have read a lot, but um, a lot in the sense of, in translation although i played with the i got a hold of that polish edition and i played with the the translations from that so i um for example the last story in pirks the pilot has um our pirks winds up being the captain of a crapo, um spaceship that's been crashed a couple of times and refurbished and it has a robot left over from the previous um, expedition which had crashed and the um, cosmonauts on the flight had died of um, cold and lack of oxygen. And their names are things like Momsen. So he's using names from, to me, that really resonate with polar exploration narratives. So you can read about the subtext or subtext, the pretextual influence of adventure narratives, and in the case of the Strugatskys, for example, they they even say we loved Kipling, so Kipling is a big influence on them, but I think another place to look for influence could be these polar narratives, and Momsen, to me, I want to say I read some guy, Momsen, who was in one of the Amundsen expeditions or something, as far as referring to Gropius, <laughs> I don't know, I didn't, I don't know about that one, but it could definitely be, or at least it makes you think, Um, that, okay, this is a guy who's creative. So uh, in Solaris, there's an episode that we get told about from the history of solaristics where a helicopter pilot named André Berton winds up seeing all this weird stuff and he gives a report. If you know André Breton, who was still alive at the time when uh, Solaris was written, the, the French surrealist poet, then it makes perfect sense that this helicopter pilot is accused of having inhaled a gas that made him slightly um hallucinate right so so he's definitely doing it all the time and i just don't know enough about the background culture i mean there needs to be a lemon encyclopedia there probably is it's just in polish thank you so much and thank you for reminding me of the wonderful nostalgia waiting for kumkeen catalogs yes <laughs> <laughs> it's weird how much of that sticks in your mind yes indeed thank you thank you so much
2: Thank you Karen. I think we have time for one more question. Does anyone have a final question for our guest speaker today?
0: Well, I think David, I would Yeah. Yes, so, totally. since I uh, I think since I'm set up the way I am on Zoom, I don't have the hand raise function, so I'll oh, raise my I actual know. hand. So <laughs> Um, sorry if I uh, may have missed this when you were talking about it before, but I was wondering Uh, Maybe how much of a, I mean, you talked about if the, you know, the future is, uh, you know, if it's the near future or the faraway future, but in your discussion, especially of um, Zamyatin's We, and I haven't read all of the books that you discussed today, but what difference does it make if the future that's depicted is a utopia or a dystopia? it doesn't um,
1: seem
3: just, to yeah it doesn't seem to make a difference i would say in mm-hmm. um it probably does in the flavor of the names that um d503 right we we read names like that and we immediately know uh, i think george lucas's first film was called dhx thx1138 so he's taking it's like a new license plate versus an old license plate right in new orleans in new new um uh, we used to have d503 and now it's you know all these digits but mm-hmm. um so that i think Particularly today, we, we immediately assume that's dehumanizing. But I think you could have beautiful names in a, in a dystopia, right? I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting many of the names in 1984, but people have perfectly nice names. And some mm-hmm. of the names in Siberia are beautiful in stories that are really kind of you know, face, face-palmingly uh, revelatory of awfulness. So I don't know. I don't know um it seemed to me that it didn't really make a difference but that's based on the reading i did for this project and not wider reading mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. okay and then final very small question one of the characters that you introduced and i'm sorry i don't remember the name of the novel or even if it was a russian author or not was Niza crete yes Niza and, and when i when you said it i thought of Niza like not mm. not closed and I wasn't sure if there was anything any that's kind of intentional or unintentional pun there. no that's
3: entirely possible. She's this lovely young astro navigator who falls in love with Erg nur mm-hmm. right and maybe indeed um maybe that's why also her name is shortened to Niza rather mm-hmm. than um so Niza Kuritz that that would in fact kind of fit her personality. I'm not sure Yefremov did that on purpose, but it could definitely be why he liked the sound of the name together. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, thank you.
2: Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. And thanks again to our speaker, Dr. Sibylen Forrester for this wonderful talk. I think we'll read science fiction and watch science fiction t- uh, movies and and TV shows in the future. And we'll start thinking about the names. Oh, the
3: names, oh, good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone have a wonderful Thursday evening. And thanks again to to Sibylen for coming, coming. Oh
3: thank you for the invitation and thank you all for attending i i uh, hope it was hope it was um interesting and thank you for the good questions
5: take care